Good morning. Did you enjoy the thunderstorm this morning? Did it wake anybody up? It was pretty loud, lightning and thunder. My animals did not want to go out this morning when I tried to let them out. They're like, uh-uh, we're staying in here. Well, I appreciate uh, you guys this morning and your hearts of worship and what a great opportunity it, it is for um, our children to participate in the waving of palms. And we are just reenacting what really happened in a point in time in history. And there was a point in time in history where people were that excited about Jesus the King. And they had great hope in Him. And I pray that that same excitement and hope is with us this morning. Jesus saves. Before I get into our message this morning, just a few announcements. Um, We're trying to do our best to keep you informed. The... uh, Pretty soon we're going to have printed bulletins again. That's in our near future, just FYI. Also, the nursery in the back, we don't have a nursery worker, but the nursery is open for any uh, young moms that feel like they need it. Just want to clarify that. And also, um, this week, Friday night, Good Friday, we have our Stations of the Cross service. And it is, there'll be no preaching, there'll be no singing Basically, you come, it's a time for me, to meditate and reflect on uh, what Christ did for us on the cross. And so you'll come in and probably the lights will be dimmed, but I think the stations will be marked one, two, and there's eight stations um, for our service. So I think you're going to start on this side and you'll just work your way around. You'll look at the pictures and read the scriptures that go with them and the meditations and reflections and of course, you're welcome to stay there for a moment and have a prayer with the Lord at each station. It's, it's all up to you. And then the last station will be set up in the back, and uh, Mr. Dwight Ray will lead you and kind of facilitate a time of communion, and then you quietly exit. And it's a floating service from 6.30 to 8.30. We've never done this before, so I don't know exactly how long it will take the families to uh, make their way through or the individuals but the idea, of course, is to, um, they'll, they'll be social distance. So as soon as there's a station open, you can kind of wait your turn until the people in front of you work their way around. Uh, if for whatever reason everybody happens to come at the same time and you're tired of waiting and you see a station open, I guess you can go out of order if, if it looks like it's taking us longer than it should. But I, I think it'll be fine. Um, maybe during this week we'll try to send out some information alphabetically though so we might just say aim, uh, names last names a through f try to come at 630 that's just what we uh, please try to do that but if you can't make it by that time you can come later but it's just try to, to get a nice flow in here and we're flexible as you know so um, Sunday week from today is Easter and we are really hoping that we will be able to have our service at the pavilion And many of you have asked, are we going to meet outside again for the summer while the the mass mandates and the pandemic is is still going on? And the answer is, that's our intention. Weather permitting, when the weather gets warm enough for us to meet out there, that will be our normal service. And then if it rains or we have a cold snap, we'll just come right back in here. The next week, we hope to meet at the pavilion. The weather's kind of going... You know, it's a little iffy right now. Might have to wear a jacket. But we really hope to have our Easter service out there. If not, it will be in here. 
if we do have our Easter service out there, we're going to flower the cross, as we do traditionally. So please bring a few flesh, uh, fresh flowers or blooms or blossoms of, or something of color. And we'll have the cross set up, and basically we will kind of single file, bring our flowers up, stick them in the cross. There'll be, uh, there's some chicken wire that receives the flowers, and then make your way back to your seat. And that's a part of our worship service for Easter. Also, lastly, weather permitting, um, you, if we meet outside, we will have donuts and coffee out there at 9 o'clock. Regular services at 10. Donuts and coffee at 9. And in light of that, in case we get to meet outside, um, we do need to kind of get a show of hands so I don't have to eat all the leftover donuts. It would be better just to have an idea who might come. Can you just raise your hand if you think you might be there? Okay. So there's about 35, about 35 hands there. And um, I don't know if that's one each, five each. We'll find out. We'll find out. But uh, appreciate your prayers. It, w- it w- really would be nice to meet outside our first time. And, um, but like we did last summer, we just asked you to keep an eye on your emails um, or on the Facebook community page. We, we try to communicate these kind of things. And because things are weather permitting, there could be some last, you know, mat- last minute or last hour um, changes. So please bear with us in light of that. Uh, also, thanks so much for all the workers that came out for the work day. We had a, a really nice crowd. A lot of work was accomplished. And as far as I know, nobody fell off a roof. Nobody broke anything, cut anything off. It was pretty uneventful, yet a lot of work was done. So thank you so much for giving your time to that. And um, <clears throat> A special thanks to Nevin and Eileen and the Rank family. They, they uh, don't like to be publicly praised for things, but it does take a lot of effort, organization, to head up this um, workday. So thank you so much for your ministry to us in that way. I think that's it, unless there's something else very important I'm missing. Is anybody? No? Okay, great. So we are, of course, we are in 2 Peter, and we are in the second chapter. And the theme of this book, I think, is is knowing and growing in the faith to the glory of God. Peter just, he just hammers us with this, this big theme of the importance of knowing God and the importance of a continued growth. And it's all by His divine power and His grace But also, in order to do that, Peter, um, he gives us a lot of warnings. He ushers a lot of warnings to the saints. Because if you're going to choose to live for Christ, we're not delivered from the pain and the tragedy and the evils of the world. So we, we, we are in the world, but not of the world. So along with that, along with this Christian life that we live, there are a lot of things that we have to be careful about. In chapter 2... One of those things that he warns us about is false teaching. And it's such a wonderful thing as Christians to know that to have the, a Bible is to have the very revealed God of Word. Word of God. Which God of Word? That's a new one. 
God of the Word, people of the Word, no, anyway, but, and so we can rely on this and depend on this, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that this morning. And as exuberating as that is, it's, it's so sad to know that we can't trust everybody that so-called speaks for God in the name of God or the voice of God, thus saith the Lord. So we have this struggle as believers to really, really grow in our discernment, to really cling to the things and the truths, the, the very great and precious promises of God, and yet at the same time be able to discern and, and smell a fish. Well, God said that, but not in that way. That's out of context. Or God never said that. Let me do a little research right here. And so we have that balance and we have that battle. And we don't always realize how important it is to know what we're reading is the truth. And as, as I was thinking about Peter's exhortations and warnings about how important it is to know God's word, I was reminded of the very familiar parable that Jesus shares with us. You know, it's harder than we might think to even receive God's word, to hear God's word, to hear God's word rightly, and then even to hear it in such a way that it, it takes root into our hearts. Because we have a lot of things working against us. Just if you think in, in the world we live in reality, it's almost like Everything but God, everything but God is against you from hearing God's truth and living according to it. Our own sin nature rejects it. Our own sin nature wants to excuse it away and, and to live for ourselves. Our world wants to stay in the darkness, keep all of this hidden and reject the word of God. So there's just every power but God's is working against us to receive his word. Now, I want to read this parable as a way of introduction just to look at it in that light. Because we often look at it in the light of how wonderful it is when people hear the gospel and get saved. But let's look at this parable from a different angle. And that is, when you hear how Jesus puts it, Look how difficult it is to hear God's word and have it rightly planted. So hear the parable of the sower, Matthew 13, 18 through 23. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. And this is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold. In another, 
60, and then another 30. And I never really realized it, and I've read that parable many, many times, but three out of four people go away still lost after being exposed to the gospel, after being exposed to God's word. Statistically, according to this parable, three out of four people go away still not quite getting it, still in darkness, still deceived. It's so difficult for a lost man to embrace this truth that it literally takes a miracle, Scripture says. That when we do embrace it, what has happened is a divine miracle. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 6, uh, 517, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, new has come. And in that same book, he talks about God saying, let there be light. And he, he compares the creation, the, the new creation in Genesis to a new creation in our heart. God literally speaks into us, let there be light. So it's, it's a miracle. So for us to be here and to know Christ means a miracle has taken place because it is so difficult. There are so many powers to be and forces that are working against us. And it makes me that much more grateful to know that the only thing, the one thing that is working for us is all it takes. You can take all the evil powers in our own heart and in the world, internal, external, that that compel us and tempt us to reject what God says and to reject worshiping Him as a worthy Savior. But when the power of God comes in, the divine powers that Peter's talking about, that's all it takes. And so no matter who's against us, if God is for us in giving us these precious and great promises, that's all it takes. And I also, by the way, like what happens to the one, three go away, still lost. But the one where the word takes root, notice how the kingdom works. It's not a loss as far as fruitfulness. Isn't that neat? Because the one does, bears more fruit, tenfold, even up to a hundredfold. Then you would think, well, if there's only one out of one out of four, then how can any kingdom work get done? And it's that same saving power that causes us to know and to grow. And so the believers, New Covenant Fellowship, we may be small, but it's a kingdom way for God to just take one of you, one of you, and bear tremendous kingdom fruit. And so we, we are here gathered in the one faith, the one hope, the one Savior, Jesus Christ. But now Peter gets very serious and in essence says, well, these are my words, but you pull them out of the Old Testament. The woe be unto you. Woe be unto the one who would deny worship, who would deny the honorable Lord what is due and take these precious truths from the royal treasury and twist them and pervert them and use them as a method to deceive. Use, it, use them as another 
hard way, making it hard for people to come into the kingdom. So according to this book, what we'll find is that God's judgment of ultimate destruction is a fitting judgment for those who would defame the ultimate God and His ultimate truth. So let's look at our text this morning in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. Here's Peter's case. He's making a case to the saints, to you and I. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented, tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. You see, these heresies, they're destructive. And not only will the heretical be destroyed on the judgment day, which we will look at, but the, the message themselves, the false teaching itself is very, very destructive to anybody who would drink of its poison. I want to examine that idea. We looked at that in verse 1. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. This is who Peter is addressing in this chapter. So, before we look at the destruction of the heretics themselves in the day of the Lord, let's consider how heresies themselves are destructive. Because that's what Peter is telling us to be careful about. He's warning us. Be careful of these false teachers. So we looked last week at what is heresy. And we found that that word actually, it, it talks about false teachings within the confines of the church, within ecclesiology, within the, the, the doctrines of the church. And they'll take what God has specifically said and written to the church and they twist it. And so they'll tell church people, you're allowed to do things that God does not allow you to do. Or, false teaching can also tell you, say, to church people, you're not allowed to do these things where actually God has given you the freedom. So there's a lot of deception going on. But the word heresy is a broader term. And I want to spend a little time with this because I think, as I said last week, that probably for us, you people right here, our church family, our bigger threat is more the school of thought, the false teaching that takes a place more outside the church than inside the church. That is the, the media, the academia, all of, the, all of our cultural means to be fed what life is about, how we're supposed to live, 
how to make right and wrong decisions, even about morality. That is infiltrating us, I think, at this point, at this cultural moment anyway, in my opinion, is a bigger threat to our spiritual well-being. Because not only are falsehoods that take place in the church dangerous, but the things that we're being fed outside from our culture, the philosophies, the, the ideas and the thoughts, I think this is what is most dangerous to us and can infiltrate our minds and weaken us. And Peter talks about being unstable. And when we're fed this diet of diluted truth or no truth at all, it can wear us down. So the word heresy actually has to do with a school of thought. They're schools of thought. This is, and it's not just on little falsehoods. We're talk, heresy is something that actually poses itself as the big truth and answers the big questions of life. And that's what makes it so dangerous because it totally redirects a, a mind, a heart, and a soul into a direction that it shouldn't go that is actually harmful to it as opposed to healthy, wholesome, and good. So anything that uproots us from God's truth does us harm to different degrees. Because God's truth as the ultimate truth tells us who we are, what makes us happy, what makes us sad, why we're here, what we should do with our lives. And it really is designed to keep beautiful things beautiful, to nurture our soul. I was thinking this morning in preparing for this, God's Word even tells us, we're in this emotional moment here in our culture, even tells us what to be emotional about. And even tells us when to rejoice. And what things to be angry at. And we're in a culture that is so confused that we get angry and mad. And pick fights against the wrong things. I mean, the enemy is having his way in our culture. But there are heretical teachings about the universal truths that God has blessed us with. Not just about ecclesiastical truths. You know, say about who's qualified to be an elder and deacon and things like that. How the church should operate. How Christians should live. But God is the God of truth. And so all truth comes from God. And he is a God of universal truths, and he created everything. And so this God's word applies to everybody, not just the church. And if we cross it, whether we're believers or not, we will suffer the consequences. And that's what we want to address. As a matter of fact, when you look, well, in a little while, we're going to look at Peter's cases. Here's case one of why you need to be careful. And if you're on the right, right, uh, wrong path, especially if you're a heretic, you can expect to be judged on the judgment day if you don't repent. And he gives us cases. But you'll notice that the examples he give us, gives us, they're really not church examples. They're examples of God's wrath against humanity, people of every race, every color, every spot on the globe have sinned against God. And their lifestyle, their way of thinking was offensive to him. And that's why I wanted to draw this uh, to our attention. If God's truth is God is a God of truth. Truth is revealed by God, or and, and it's discovered. It's already there, and he gives us the curiosity, and we're created in his image, and we can discover the truths that are already there. And our culture tells us 
that truth today, it's a social construct. In other words, we make it up. We decide what it is. And so right off the bat, anybody who does not agree with God's ways as the ultimate truth that apply to everybody, we're at odds. And our culture is at odds with us right now. It is, is at odds with holy scripture. Because it's telling us to make important life decisions, even eternal life decisions, based on the way it thinks. It is conforming us or wants to conform us to its image. It's no wonder the Apostle Paul says in Romans, let us no longer conform to the pattern of this world. Make no mistake, there is a firm pattern in this world right now through our culture. Anything less than embracing God's ultimate truth hurts us across the board. So here's how uh, many of you have maybe read Blaise Pascal. He was the very, very smart mathematician in the area of the Enlightenment. He was a mathematician as if that wasn't not, uh, enough. He was a philosopher. He was just pretty much he was one of those guys that was too smart. And he was a believer. He was a strong believer. And he used his mind and his passion to combat the atheism of his day that was a result of the Enlightenment. So to people, he would often get picked on because in the Enlightenment era, you no longer had to rely on faith, things that you couldn't see. Now we know everything we need to know through science. And if I can't know it through science, then it doesn't exist. So these are the kind of things he had to put up with. And it was the age of scientism or empiricism. If I can't touch it and see it, smell it, and put it under a microscope, it doesn't exist. So people would say something to this effect to him, you poor man. You are living your whole life based on faith in something you can't see or prove. I only live by facts. I only live by things I can prove. I'm an empiricist. You can have your faith. I work on visible evidence. And so here's how Pascal would answer this. He said, that is unjustified self-flattery. I base my life and my destiny on a belief there is a God who can be known and who reveals what is right and wrong through the Bible. I base my life on that. I can't prove it empirically, though there's plenty of evidence for it. I can't prove it. You, on the other hand, are basing your life and your destiny on a belief that there's no God. And, or if He is there, it doesn't matter how I worship Him or how I approach Him. You can't prove that empirically either. Of course you couldn't. Therefore, what's the difference between us? I'm wagering my entire life on the fact that there's a God who reveals himself in the Bible. You're wagering your entire life on the idea that there isn't a God or if he's there, it doesn't, he doesn't reveal himself through the Bible. And then neither of us can empirically and demonstratively prove our positions and everything we do and everything we decide is predicated on those assumptions. So where do you come across being superior? You see the battle between thoughts and ideas and truths that literally determine how we're going to behave, the decisions we're going to make, what we're going to do and not do with our lives. That's how important 
the difference between truth and falsehood is. And empiricism was very dangerous in that day. During the Enlightenment, it was an excuse to another excuse to not believe in God and reject God. That's what the scientists took their discoveries to mean. There is no God, and now I can kind of prove it, although they can. And so now you have uh, generations of people that are purposely not living for God because they're teaching He does not exist. It's, it's, a, it's a false view. It's an alternative way to live. And yet God's truth applies to everybody across the board in every age and time. He has laws about the universe. There are things that operate a certain way because that's how God designed them to operate. And here we have people living as if there is no God. We have the same thing today, of course. We have people who start families, they, they, they rear children, uh, they grandparent, they, they work, they have work ethics based on teachings that don't line up with God's Word. So today, our challenge is relativism. Empiricism was replaced by relativism. Whereas empiricism says, there's no truth but the truth I can see under a microscope or I can prove with a scientific method. Relativism kind of got tired of that view. And they said, yeah, but you know what? That's still based on your mind. You're saying I know truth objectively, but really what you're just doing is you're looking at things and it's coming out through your mind. It passes through your mind, so that's not objective. I reject that. And actually, now we hear things like, you, you can have your own truth. What's true for you may not be true for me. Because once it passes through anybody's mind, there's no such thing as objective truth. So we live in an area of, or an age of relativism. And this comes through, this comes to us through every conceivable angle. Our cartoons that are produced today, that our kids watch. I'm telling you, there is relativism. There is this constant teaching that there is no absolute truth or standard. And everybody just needs to accept everybody else's truth. That does not work in real life. Now, it's sad to say that today's young people, most of today's young people, they've rejected empiricism. They've seen the flaws of that. It's, it's cold. It's dark. They want to believe in something. They've embraced relativism. But they have rejected, in many cases, the church. So they eject, they, they've rejected science as an authoritative voice. But a lot of people, young people, have rejected the church as a voice of authority because what they look out and see in the real world is an abuse of power. They see a, a, an author, authoritative institution that says one thing but lives in a different way or has abused its power. Of course, we are guilty of that. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong, and there's a lot of good that comes out of the church, but I'm just, if you look, if you read what's coming through the minds of young people these days, sadly, that's one of the things that they conclude. I can't trust really any authority now. I have to be my own authority because all of the other authorities before me have failed. Now, that's the kind of people that we want, that we're trying to reach. So we have generation now that feels like they've been left on their own. 
That's why we see so many crazy ideas out there. there. People are trying to find their way, find meaning and purpose through their lives, through a smorgasbord of morality. What's right and wrong can be different depending on who you are. What's true and false can be different depending on who you are. So I, got, I like to think of our culture as the thumbs up, thumbs down culture. It's what you get on your texts and things. It's the, it's the tech thing. We are not a truth-based culture. We're an opinion-based culture. Everything in our culture is thumbs up, thumbs down. It doesn't matter if it's based on that facts. And you see a lot of things come through the news. And before you have even seen the facts or taken the time to actually read the entire article, based on the headline, you've already judged it as true or false based on your opinion and how you want to feel about it. This happens every day in our culture now. And now we have this thing called a cancel culture. I mean, people are being crucified today for things sometimes they're guilty of and sometimes they aren't, but people want them to be guilty. So it's a very, very dangerous culture. And here we are in Second Peter, and Peter is talking to the church about how important it is to know God's Word and to grow in God's Word and to be able to discern God's Word and to build your life, to build on the rock, build everything you are on God's Word. Look at the world through God's truth, not your own and not what the culture teaches you. And we live in a very, very dangerous culture right now because it's based on opinion and not truth, which means, like the Old Testament says in the book of Judgment, Judge, uh, judges, everybody just does what's right in their own eyes. And you see what happens in that kind of culture. It cannot work. People get hurt. And unfortunately, in our culture, most of the people that get hurt are the children. With the thought, the mode of thinking today, as we experiment with truth and morality, our children are the carnage. And that's for another sermon. So we can't expect to agree on things if there's no standard. You ever notice that our culture today is having a hard time agreeing on anything with all the divisiveness? How do you expect us to agree, agree on anything if you have your truth and I have mine? It's impossibility. And yet we live in a culture that promotes relativity, the very thing that actually pulls us apart. It, common sense says, well, we need to all agree on some rules here in order to get along. That's how we do games, sports. That's how we are, drive somewhat safely on the ro road because we've come out with laws and rules that enable this whole transportation system to work. Turn your blinker on for crying out loud. I almost ran into you. These rules are here for a purpose. And if nobody's going to play by them or everybody does their own thing, do we really expect to have a harmony and unity as a culture or even in a church? The truth is of the utmost importance, especially in this cultural uh, moment. Now, two, quickly, two reasons why the, the false systems of life that we often hear through our culture are dangerous. Very, very dangerous and destructive, as Peter says. One is because if there's no objective truth, 
and you say, well, there's no real right way to do things, your truth or your lifestyle is no better than mine, then it also means there's no wrong way to do things. It's not just that there's no objective right, then there's no objective wrong. So you see how with this thinking, though it's actually hard to live consistent with it because we're created in the image of God and we have moral sense in us, with this thinking, you, you kind of can do no right or wrong. So what's the purpose either way? And then you have a, people that don't understand why they're so anxious or angry or lonely or empty. But when you can really do nothing wrong or nothing right, there's no reward in life. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. No wrong way. And the problem with this is that now we have people that need help but you can't help them. Because if, what am I going to do? Bring you my right way, my right method that will pull you out of your wrong way of living? You see, we're, we're, we've created a culture that we can't even help each other in. Because there's no objective truth or standards. I can just give you a thumbs down and say no thanks. And therefore I stay stuck. I stay hurt. I stay broken. No help. There's, there's no real lifeline that anybody can throw anybody other than just thumbs up, thumbs down, opinionated culture where we just do whatever we want to do with whatever is out there. Especially the self-help. The self-help, and yet Jesus came to save us from ourselves. Our culture is so dangerous and destructive right now. That you can't even speak the truth without risking harm to yourself. We live in a no-hate culture that hates everything and everybody. The now, our culture is so dangerous that if you stand up and speak God's truth, you could be at great risk to yourself. You could be labeled a hater. Because right now, a lot of God's truths are considered hate speech in our free speech society. Where I remember the days where Christians were wrung around the neck for censor, censorship. You know, in the libraries, if, if they covered a picture of nudity so that kids couldn't see it, or they took out some cuss words that weren't age appropriate, it was terrible censorship. And here we have... Examples of censorship uh, more than we did back in that day. So it's so dangerous that if I, as a believer, take God's word seriously and believe that the best thing for everybody under the sun is to live as a worshiper of God and to embrace his truth, then I could be labeled dangerous and a hater. And some of this is even in law. Uh, if, I get, if I say, I'm not going to unite you in holy matrimony because you don't line up with the scriptural mandate of who God has given me permission to marry, then I'm a hater and I'm bad for society. Uh, Christians that might counsel somebody and help them through their confusing gender identity issues, if you try to counsel somebody to say, you know, rather than 
changing the physical appearance of your body, maybe the problem is here. Let's try to change your mind first. Maybe you're not thinking correctly. That's considered very, very dangerous and on the verge of being illegal to counsel somebody. So you see, that's how dangerous our culture is. That's how destructive the the heresy, this idea of schools of thought can be. And this is what we face most of all, I think. You know, and we can feel, I know I feel the wrath of the big cultural thumb that looms over our heads based on what we write, what we say, how we respond to things that just judges me if I fail to conform to it. You know, in medicine, they a very helpful thing, one of the first things they often do in medicine, if you're not feeling well or if there's any kind of concern about anything, is they form a baseline. You have to have a baseline to work off, off of so you know what normal looks like so you can know if you're even sick. If you take away the baseline and anything goes, how are we even going to know who's sick and who's healthy? And that's the culture we live in today. We have morally sick people, mentally sick people that we can't help or might refuse help because there is no such thing as right or wrong or good help or bad help. Talk about self-destructive. How long can we endure like this? So it's, it's destroying us in that sense. The second way, it destroys us because we have people that live their lives as if there's no judgment day. As if there is no end where everything will be set right. Where people who have done vile, sinful things will be judged righteously. Justly. Where those who have done things that are meaningful and helpful will be rewarded. Because the Bible says there is good and evil. There is right and wrong. And every thought and every action makes a difference to one way or another. But when you have a people that live or choose to live as if there is no reckoning, only what happens here in this world is what I need to fear. Which means if I get away with something, I no longer need to fear it. How is that going to alter society and behavior? If I'm a child and I think if I can disobey my parents and I get away with it, then all is good. That's not true, according to Scripture. If you cheat on your spouse and you get away with it, all is not well, according to Scripture. When we fail to do what God calls righteous and do what is unrighteous, we will be held accountable to these things. They are not harmless. So Peter is saying it's a big mistake. Don't fall prey to living and making decisions like the rest of the world because we will all face a day of reckoning. We're not a victim of our circumstances. We are moral beings. We are thinking beings. We can assess these things. We're interpreters of our circumstances, not victims of our circumstances. So the point of all of this is to warn us that since God punished the unrighteous, He's done it in the past, it will happen again in the future. 
So let's look at Peter's cases as, uh, as we wind down here in this passage. He gives us historical examples of how God thought and how God acted based on truth versus falsehood, righteousness versus unrighteous living. And once again, notice it wasn't just applied to the church. Case one, consider fallen angels. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So angels created just below God, created in glory and power and and dignity, beautiful, powerful servants. And they despised authority. They rejected their God. And God was unsparing in this act of rebellion. And unrighteousness, and they were cast out of his presence, consigned to a lake of fire and brimstone and endless torment. Peter says, case number two, Noah's generation. If he didn't spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So if the angel lesson isn't enough, think about Noah's generation. They were living life as if judgment was not coming. And they were swiftly swept away in their unbelief, doing what was right in their own eyes. So learn the lesson. Case three, Sodom and Gomorrah. So he starts out with the oldest and he's getting even more and more recent. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinct extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And he goes on. Here's an example of what happens. So Peter's saying, learn from the ancients. It's not that God can judge. It's that God has judged and God will judge again. And in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were engaged in the, the sexual freedom thought, just like Peter is addressing in this book. That's all good. Do whatever your impulse tells you to do. And that was judged. See, destruction is not sleeping for those that despise the authority of God. And to fail to live according to God and His His ways is to diminish Christ because God is truth. So in some way, any act of unrighteousness diminishes and denies the deity, the authority, and the worthiness of God. So let me give, you, give us a few things just to take home, a few ways to apply this. Obviously, beware of false teachers. Beware of false teachers in the church that will pull us away from God and diminish Christ. Beware of false teachers outside of the church in view of universal truths. And we need to establish ourselves and make every effort to know God. Second obvious application. There will be a judgment day. This is just one place in Scripture that mentions it. We are all held accountable. We will stand before God and we will be judged not by our own standard, not by opinionated thumbs up and down cultural standards. We will be judged according to God's standard. Third, 
as hard as it is to hear God's truth and embrace it, with all that's working against us, you can be saved. God is a powerful God. We can be saved from lies. We can be saved from sin. We can be saved from brokenness. We can be saved from eternal uh, punishment and the day of judgment. If we allow Christ to make that triumphal entry that we just celebrated, His triumphal entry right into our hearts and take up residence, we can be saved. God knows how to destroy the undeserving, but He also knows how to preserve the righteous, even in the midst of wicked and evil cultures. Also, Another thing we can take uh, home with us, if God is for us, who can be against us? That is so clear in Scripture. That's what really counts. If you need anything, if you want anything, if you're reaching out to any kind of lifeline, let it be God. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If God is for us. And then lastly, how we live... And how we esteem Christ always go together. Let us not be deceived that just knowing correct doctrine or be getting an A plus on our orthodoxy test also applies to how we live it out. What we believe and how we live are inextricable. They're both witnesses to the worthiness of God in Christ. I'll close with this illustration. It's sad, but it's relevant. And I don't use it to condemn this person. I use it strictly as a real-life historical learning lesson, just as Scripture often does. But there was a champion of the faith, known worldwide, who talked about worldview. He taught worldview, and he refuted every other false worldview, and his name was Rabbi Zacharias. I've listened to him many times. I think he is a brilliant, was a brilliant man who championed the faith. And yet, recent, he died actually in May of 2020. And during his funeral service, let me get my notes straight here. <clears throat> so for years he had a powerful blossoming ministry. A few years back, a woman... Uh, made against before he died, a woman made an accusation against him, but of course it was considered false because, after all, this is Ravi Zacharias, he's a man of God, and he denied it himself. So it's a tragedy that he died in May, but it's not the only tragedy. A woman was watching his funeral and hearing all the wonderful things that people were saying about him, and she said to herself as she watched this. They don't know. They don't know. They don't know that he lived another life of sexual deviancy and and manipulation. And they don't know. But she knew because she was a victim of this behavior. She had been taken advantage of. By the way, people in high places of ministry that have powerful ministries, often people will just put their hearts into your hand because they think that you're a God figure. They just completely trust you and have a tendency to lose some discernment. She thought, maybe if I come forward, others will be able to be set free by telling the truth. And she came forward 
which gave others the courage to come forward. And I'm sad to say that uh, Rabbi Zacharias, uh, who held um, orthodox orthodoxy uh, exemplary in his in his ideas in his mind, actually in this area lived as a heretic. He lived falsely. So we can believe false false things and we can live false things. So his practice did not match his belief system. He lived according to a different school of thought. See how dangerous it is when we let it into our minds? And as a result of this, people were badly hurt. Many people were badly hurt. People were betrayed. Loved ones were betrayed. You have to realize that to live this kind of life... In secret means you're betraying every... You're, you're lying on every level. I mean, what are you telling your wife when you go and come home? Your kids when you go. Your ministry board. The whole, the whole lifestyle was off. Women have been abused. And this worldwide ministry... The ministry posthumously repented and asked forgiveness... Wasn't even sure what they were going to do now. And, actually, and, and recently they've just closed the whole thing down. All because of someone that was a, and I say this with a broken heart, a practicing heretic. Who knows so much more than I do about God and His Word. You see, in, in important, he, he diminished the very master that he purported to worship and serve and to fight for. Christ has been diminished. Judgment does not sleep. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts on this Palm Sunday and that any palm waving would be only waved for the glory of God who is alone worthy of our breath, our life, and our worship. May God bless the preaching of His Word.